Welcome to VCR, a Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And I'm Michael. And today, we're checking out our first film noir on the podcast. That's right. And it was selected by yours truly. So (laughs) (laughs) for those of you... So for those of you who sat through our last Temptation of Christ episode, Blake immediately (laughs) reneged on his promise to never let me pick another movie. So I'm as curious as the rest of you are to see how this plays out. I I think you might think that I'm lower on this movie than I actually am. Okay. Well, I think you might think I'm higher on this movie than I actually am. Ooh, I might. I might actually. Spicy. We are doing The Third Man from 1949. Mm-hmm. It's our first movie from the 40s. It's our... Uh, we've done a couple black and white films at this point, but it's it, there's a few firsts here. Like, like I said, we haven't done really a film noir before. You picked a pretty classic film noir film, I think, as That's well. That's right. Film noir film. <laughs> yeah. And that being said, let's just jump into a, the plot summary And uh, continue on with the primer. Okay, great. So, The Third Man, 1949, directed by Carol Reed. Joseph Cotton stars as Holly Martins, a down-on-his-luck author of westerns. He gets off the train to Vienna at the invitation of his friend Harry Lime, who's offered him a job. Except when he arrives, he finds out that Harry is dead, and he died under presumably mysterious circumstances. So, after meeting some colorful characters and having a few choice words with the uh, police major overseeing one section of Vienna, Holly decides, against his better judgment, to start investigating his best friend's murder, in air quotes. What unravels from there is a very unique film noir set in the backdrop of a post-war Vienna. Yeah, and I think you should really we should really focus on the post-war Vienna aspect of this. Like that is honestly I think that's more about what this movie is about is post-World War II. And I think if you come into that, this movie thinking about it in that frame of reference, like the film opens up with a narration kind of explaining the time period that we're in. We're in this in Vienna, and right now the city has almost been cut into four yeah. quadrants. And so each quadrant is being policed and orders being kept by a different country. Uh, so we have the British, the Americans, the Russians, and the French. And what it says kind of in the opening narration is that, you know, each of these factions is kind of trying to do their best to kind of keep the city together. But in the center of it all, there's kind of a a group of international police. There's one person from each country kind of heading this. And none of them really speak the same language. So there's this language barrier between all of them there's this struggle struggle to kind of keep things grounded and and kind of you know not let crime run completely rampant although it's definitely running rampant at this point in time this is this movie is almost the story of a place even more so than it's a story about characters I, i think very much so and and that's kind of where i really wanted to dive into this uh rather than talk about the characters and and the plot like i i really felt like 
this movie was trying to tell a story of a place in a period in time. And what's really cool about that is it's essentially the period in time that they're trying to capture is the period in time in which they're filming, more or less. Basically, yeah. This would have been right on the cusp. Or, I mean, it would have been very, like, contemporary at the time. But, like, from a more historical perspective, what's interesting is that this takes place right after World War II, but right before the Cold War. Like, Vienna has been blasted all to hell. There's rubble everywhere. Like, it's just, you know, it's a very, it's war-torn, for lack of a better term. And what's really fascinating about that, too, is... This is essentially war-torn Vienna. Like, they shot on location. These are the real bombed-out buildings of post-World War II. Mm-hmm. And that's something that... It puts a lot of things in perspective to be able to see a movie filmed on that location in that period of time. And just, like, the attitude of the movie, too. I really love that opening narration, which, as it turns out, was by Carol Reed, the director... There's a great couple sentences in the monologue where they show like all the blasted out buildings and the narrator is just like, Vienna doesn't look any worse than a lot of European cities bombed about a bit. Like it's just the sheer like nonchalance of it all, right? Yeah, right. This movie is very interesting because there's this feeling of wrongness throughout it. And even with that opening narration, it just feels somewhat off. And and that's kind of a very unique feeling that very few films are able to do well. And I can always appreciate a film that, that really gets me in that kind of mood. Yeah, the narration. It's interesting because, like, the narrator isn't a character that we meet later on in the movie. No. He's never given a name. And just, like, you know, the be- <laughs> So he sort of, he very quickly describes what's going on in Vienna you know, the attitude, all that stuff. And then there's almost kind of like a pause where he's like, I have it written down actually, because I liked it so much. He's There's just kind of a pause and there's like, oh, I was going to tell you about Holly Martins. Like he's almost flustered yeah. and he forgot what he was talking about. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so, it's so unique and it's such a cool opening that I was really interested immediately because like it really paints this picture of this underbelly of this city and it, it makes the city feel alive and, and feel like we're almost entering the story partway through the story, right? Mm-hmm. And just trying to pick up the pieces. And and that's, again, that's kind of reflective of the time, right? Is everybody's just trying to pick up the pieces of what's happened. And that's what we're doing as the viewers right now. It's also kind of reflective of Holly Martins as a character. Like, jumping ahead a bit, this is a very... um. Holly is a very interesting noir protagonist in that he is almost hilariously unqualified to be just the protagonist of a film in general. Right. (laughs) And that's, I'm also very biased in that I love that kind of a setup in a movie where the Mm -hmm. main character has no business being the main character of the film. No, Holly's, Holly's very likable, but he's like almost cartoonishly like inept at everything he does. And naive. Yeah, extremely naive. Like... So for some context for our listeners, like the whole deal is Holly at the start of the movie, he's an author of like trashy pulp fiction, Western novels, right? Right. He's basically a hack writer, essentially. (laughs) And he's a drunk, as we see multiple times. The whole reason he's coming to Vienna is because he's broke 
and his childhood best friend Harry Lime is offering him a job. So actually, it's hauntingly similar to our future relationship where I'm I'm a down on my luck writer. You're living abroad as a crime lord and you're offering me a job to do something. Yeah, exactly. Holly's like, he's a likable enough guy and he cares about his friend and all that stuff. But like, he's like really sticking his fit. He's really sticking his nose places. It doesn't belong and not helping out the people around him. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Like, Right off the bat, he's brought in by the international police group, and this is actually the British squad of the the group. And the British kind of police officer kind of explains to him, you know, your friend was murdered. We're really busy right now. We're trying to sort things out, but we can't really help you. And Holly Martins is like, well, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to figure this all out. And and Major Calloway, the, the British major. Great character, by the way. Yeah. He's kind of exasperated with him. He's like, uh, I can't even remember what he says. He's like, all that you'll find is death here. There's there's nothing for you. Like, there, you might as well just go home. Like, you really should be here. Like, you're completely out of your element, Donnie. <laughs> There's a great moment in that first scene where they meet where Holly's drunk and he's angry and he's like, now you listen here, Callahan. And he's like, it's Callaway. I'm not Irish. Yeah. (laughs) And you know what? You mentioned that Holly is drunk throughout the film. The actor who plays him, and let's move into characters and people you may know here. Joseph Cotton plays Holly Martins and he plays him so dynamically drunk throughout the film like his eyes are so glassy i don't think i've ever seen anyone portray uh, an alcoholic better than his portrayal of holly martin's like a functioning alcoholic well i think we made this joke on other podcasts that like if you're ever watching a movie that was filmed like pre-1960 just assume that the lead actor was drunk yeah like whatever scene whatever shot he was probably shit-faced yeah. Well, and especially in this case, that's what the character needed too. So, you know, I I didn't read anything about Joseph Cotton being drunk throughout the film and, you know, I don't think he was probably wasted, but, you know, maybe he had a gin and tonic before every set or something like that or before the camera started rolling. I I would not not believe that. <laughs> Let's talk Joseph Cotton really quickly. So, n- normally we talk about who these people are in terms of you know a modern perspective and because this movie was filmed in 1949 none of these actors are still alive if you haven't watched a lot of older movies you probably honestly haven't seen a lot of these actors however Mm -hmm. uh joseph cotton is a relatively well-known actor and we've actually covered him before on this podcast have we he actually played the character of william R. Simonson in Soylent Green. He was the rich man who was on the Soylent Green board or the Soylent board who is murdered in the opening of that film. So he's pretty central, important to that film. If you've seen the film Citizen Kane, one of the most famous films of all time, he's actually the second lead of the film. He's playing Jedediah Leyland. Huh. And there's a very deep connection to that film in this as well, which we're going to get to pretty shortly, actually. Oh, boy, will we. (laughs) The other characters, so we already mentioned Major Calloway, the British police major. Anna Schmidt is also very relevant to the film. She's Harry's ex-girlfriend, essentially. So she has 
Austrian-Russian kind of heritage. I don't remember exactly what her heritage is, but I, I, I think it was more Soviet than it was Austrian. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and so she was completely head over heels in love with Harry Lyme, and so she's kind of helping Holly Martin's kind of figure out how or why Harry was murdered because she cares so deeply for him. And and part of this film is about, you know, not only her relationship to Harry Lyme, but her relationship to Holly Martin's and how each of their relationships developed and develops throughout this film. And that's a really interesting piece of this film that I really, I really, really loved because this film has a really, really good ending to it, in my opinion. It really does. It definitely does. And so we've talked a lot about Harry Lime. He's the friend who was murdered. We don't really know who or why or anything like that. He is played by Orson Welles, which is probably the one of the most known names of this era in Hollywood. Or any era, for that matter. Yeah, he's one of the most famous Hollywood people of all time, very much uh, one of the most important or famous directors of all time. He directed, co-wrote, and starred in Citizen Kane. He was also, where I actually knew him from, was him adapting The War of the Worlds and then narrating it over the radio and causing somewhat of a panic with people thinking that the world was actually being invaded by aliens. That actually happened, people. Like, if you ever start feeling like humans have got their shit together, just like, <laughs> remember that that, that happened. <laughs> that story always really fascinated me as a kid, um, partially because aliens... But just this mass hysteria kind of idea, just human beings are wild. Oh, yeah. No. And speaking of wild, like, <laughs> I guess Orson Welles, I didn't look into it too deeply, but I guess he was a pretty problematic actor on set <laughs> yes, for this he movie. Was. <laughs> yes, he like, was. I think the joke I heard is that he was almost too in character for this whole movie. I don't want to talk too much about the character of Harry Lyme because this is really what the film is all about and what mm -hmm. what we're interested in learning about. What's really interesting about this film is it's kind of a mystery, but it's almost more about the why than it is about the who done it kind of thing. The why was it done rather than the who yeah. who did it. So again, for our listeners who haven't seen it yet, the whole deal is when Holly first shows up, he hears that Lime was killed in a car accident. Mm -hmm. Like he just got hit by a car crossing the road, essentially. Like just kind of a random collision, whatever. Yeah. But Holly suspects foul play and he starts digging around, asking people, etc., etc. And gradually he learns. He starts picking out like the inconsistencies in people's stories. I have to give Holly credit, like, he he's not a particularly bright guy, but he is good at pulling on threads. Yeah. Like, the hotel porter says that he was killed on impact, someone else says that he was struck, but then conscious enough to pass on some instructions, and then he died. Right. And then he hears that there was two people there, and then, as the title comes in, he hears that there was a third man present. Yes. Et cetera, et cetera. So... Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot going on in this film, and 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 like I said, the film is centered around the third man. But in my opinion, it's more about the why than it is about the who. And and it's, mm. I like I I knew 
pretty quickly where the film was going in terms of the who, but the why really interested me. Mm. I do want to mention the writer of the film. So it's written by Graham Greene. Um, he actually wrote a novella of the film first in order to kind of work out the details of the movie and what he wanted to portray on screen. So he was uh-huh. really focused on developing the atmosphere of Vienna at this time period and the characterization and mood of the film. And I thought that translated really well. And I thought that was a really interesting approach to writing a screenplay. That is interesting. Yeah. You don't see that very often. And he never actually intended for that novella to be read. But obviously, with the success of this film, they ended up releasing the novella later on. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And this is also directed by Carol Reed, who is most known for the film Oliver, which is a very, very famous film. You know, the poor British boy. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Oliver Twist. Please, sir, may I have some more? Exactly. Oliver Twist. Right. And let's talk who this movie is for. And I think where I want to start this is this is a black and white film from 1949. And Mm -hmm. we're immediately going to lose a lot of people here in that explanation, right? Yeah, a lot of dumb people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and this is where I want to ask you, like, like, maybe give us some background into black and white film and film noir and some of the history behind that. Cause I know you were kind of interested in that going into this episode. Yeah. I've always kind of been partial when I first went to film school, like 11 years ago, I think the first class that I really got into was my film noir class. And that's when I really started like, you know, you know, pulling on threads, picking things apart, that sort of thing. So I did a little bit of research today just to brush up on my knowledge. And mm-hmm. it's interesting in the sense that like film noir, uh, like, okay, maybe this isn't fair because it's you. But like when I just say the term film noir, like, what do you think of? Like, I think of like, obviously, a black and white film. I think of a detective kind of thriller. I think of a film that doesn't necessarily have a happy ending. There might be a bitterness to the end of the film, a very stylistic kind of film that really uses uh, lighting and, and atmosphere to essentially as another character of the film. Mm-hmm. And I think you're touching on it really well. Like when I say film noir, we all kind of get like a vibe, right? Like yeah. we all kind of, we sort of get like an aesthetic down, but like, even to this day, critics can't really decide whether or not it's a genre or whether it's a visual style, all that right. stuff. So before I jump into the origins, I actually found something really interesting. Um, in 1995, Roger Ebert published an article called A Guide to Film Noir. Oh, cool. Where he just, he just outlines the 10 qualities that every film noir has. So. Uh-huh. I went through that today, and I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just going to read a couple that I found the most interesting. Yeah, for sure. One is a movie which at no time misleads you into thinking there is going to be a happy ending. Yes. Another one is, another one is cigarettes. Everybody <laughs> in the film... <laughs> Everybody in film noir is always smoking as if to say... On top of everything else, I've been assigned to smoke three packs a day. And and you know what? And that's actually the first thing that comes to mind is some grizzled detective 
in his back office with the door closed and the blinds down and him and the sitting fan there going smoking. and like yeah the, the fan the going ashtray. exactly yeah. that's the exact picture in my mind that i have when you say film noir okay another one is women who would just as soon kill you as love you and vice Ooh, versa i love it the black widow kind of character uh another one is relationships in which love is only the final flop card in the poker game of death I love it. I love this. <laughs> so descriptive. Okay, and the one, just one more, and this one's my favorite. The most American film genre, because no society could have created a world so filled with doom, fate, fear, and betrayal, unless it were essentially naive and optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You just summed up this movie to a T. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So, oh, I love again, it. just... Touching on the origins a little more, I guess what the other thing that's kind of interesting about film noir is that sort of it sort of metastasized, like the genre conventions sort of like metastasized in like the mid to early 40s. And they just started churning these movies out. They were relatively low budget. At the time, they were more considered like melodramas. But then if I remember correctly from film school, What's interesting is that during World War II, like European critics couldn't get their hands on American films. Uh-huh. So after the war, they started getting this backlog of all these American films from the last five to 10 years. And they were instantly like, whoa, what's going on in America right now? <laughs> <laughs> so I like actually it. film noir, it's a French term that literally means black film or dark film. Yes. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is that within like five years, people started playing with conventions. Like, right. like if you want to think about this in terms of like an evil AI, like film noir became self-aware pretty quickly and they started, <laughs> it started acting funny, essentially. Cool. And then again, just one more note about origins is it partly was influenced by German expressionism from the 1920s and 30s. Mm-hmm. So these were like, German filmmakers who had like very distinct lighting styles, very distinct narratives, a lot of that stuff. And then a lot of them fled the Nazis in the 30s and came to Hollywood and brought their techniques with them. And again, like kind of what you mentioned earlier, the other big origin point is crime fiction from the 30s and 40s. Right. So like writers like Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett. Um, I remember I had a professor back in the day who basically said like those stories were translated to the screen really well because it was essentially just like talking and fighting. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. Like the old school gangster movies, right? Yeah. 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 And the other thing I want to say, because we're touching on the genre a bit and I want to touch on the black and white aspect of the film as well. Um, Mm -hmm. This is something that I'm, I'm really just kind of, starting to delve into myself um it's not something that i honestly ever thought i'd be interested in per se but i'm finding that there's so much more in terms of the cinematography that's missing from colored films that that you know the director's thinking about what if i put the lighting here instead of here and how is the shadows going to how how am i going to use the shadows and and the lack of lighting in in the film and in the character's face and, and this and that kind of thing. And it, like I said, it kind of takes on a character all of its own, especially when it's in the hands of a really good director. And that's something that I really, really appreciate about this film. 
And not only that, but the aspects of the legacy of a film like this and, and the way that it uses black and white. So in, in this film, and I'm kind of talking effects and filming slightly, but a lot of this film, they uh, would spray down roads to make them look wet and glistening so that there would be reflections of some of the light coming coming up while they were filming. And that's something that you'll see uh, Michael Mann use a lot in his films. So like, I was actually thinking of the film Thief while I was watching this film because, you know, that always raining and and that kind of mood and that style that Michael Mann uses so often really is a callback to to these kind of films. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that I really appreciated. Like seeing the connections and starting to see these connections on this podcast is is really exciting for me. And I was I was really drawn into that aspect. The other aspect of this film that I was really drawn into is, you know, we've started watching a couple Hitchcock films in the last couple of years. And and this is really mm-hmm my intro into Hitchcock and what I'll say is I've watched a lot of Hitchcockian influences from the nineties onwards. I just recently watched, um, a knock at the cabin, which is an M night Shyamalan film. And a lot of his films have kind of Hitchcockian twist to them at the end kind of thing. And so, you know, we went like, I've been watching a lot of Hitchcockian modern films, and then we've watched a few Hitchcockian fi- or like actual Alfred Hitchcock films. And, you know, this is almost like the precursor to Hitchcock's films, in my opinion. Like a lot of aspects of the twists and turns of this kind of story and and kind of that twist unexpected ending is is really something that he really embraced, right? I think one of the hallmarks of getting if I can if I may be so bold, getting more sophisticated in the type of content you consume is that the further back you go, the you realize that all your heroes were essentially stealing something from someone. Yeah, everything you know? <laughs> is derivative, essentially. Right, right. And, and you know, this is derivative of something that was made in, like, the 20s. And that was derivative of something that was, you know, a theater production in the mid-1800s. And, and you know, mm-hmm. th- this goes back and back and back. And so we're humanity is telling the same stories that we've been telling with, for the last 2,000 years or 4,000 years, right? It's just with these modern aspects updating it and and telling it in different formats, right? And that's something that I also am really interested in. Yeah, and I mean, even this movie in particular, like it's playing with a lot of, you know, it's playing with a lot of, you know, big themes. Like Mm -hmm. one of the things I found so interesting about this movie is the whole like stranger in a strange land kind of thing, you know? So- Holly is American and only speaks English, and he's surrounded by people in this movie who don't really speak English, and the film does not give you subtitles. Like, when somebody's yelling at him and he has no idea what they're saying, you have no idea what they're saying either. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So kind of getting back to who this movie is for, I think at first glance, it might have a limited audience in 2023, but I think the history buffs, the historians are really going to love this. I think film buffs going back and and seeing like the connections that I was kind of connecting to with this like I, there's a, a nostalgia here for something I've never seen and I'm you know I'm calling back to all these films and all of these thoughts and feelings that I've had watching other films and and that's something that I really appreciated watching this one mm-hmm. so that's who I think this is kind of for 
There's also some iconic scenes. There's a very iconic score. The third man score is is one of the most iconic scores of film of all time. I'd heard this before, actually, and oh, I, really? I didn't realize that this this score is where this was from. And so that was very interesting to me because of how prevalent it is throughout, right? Yeah, more on the score later because it is extremely unique. Yes, very much agree. And then there's, like I said, there's almost like this feeling of deep wrongness and and everything is just somewhat off throughout the film. And that's something that I really appreciate as well because that makes me think of like a great atmospheric horror film. And then that's something that I, I absolutely love. Like I almost thought of it follows while I was watching this because Oh really? that's one of my favorite horror movies. And throughout that movie, there's all this just like just wrongness. Like everything is just slightly off to mess with your brain. You just feel kind of creeped out the whole time. Yeah. And, and this film had that just, just a little bit, but it was there for me the whole time. And, and that was something that kind of kept me intrigued throughout the film. Well, and I think the opening narration does a good job of establishing that in like the course of a minute. Yeah. The opening lines of this movie is the narrator going, I never knew the old Vienna before the war with its Strauss music, its glamour, and its easy charm. Constantinople suited me better. I really got to know it in the classic period of the black market. And so instantly we have this image of like a great proud city with all this culture and heritage that's just been destroyed, like bombed to hell. And now like it's basically just, you know, it's a den of thieves, essentially. Exactly. People are doing whatever they can to survive. And that's very much apparent as we get later and later into this film. One thing early in the movie that I found really unsettling is Holly arrives, he goes to the hotel, and he meets the porter who tells him about Harry getting hit by a car. And the Mm -hmm. porter doesn't really speak English. And Mm -hmm. he kind of just says like, oh, Mr. Lime, I hope he's in. He points up and he says he should be in hell. And then he points down and he says not in heaven. Right. So... Like, it's clearly the porter just not understanding what he's saying. But, like, even that in the first 10 minutes, you're just kind of like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I caught that as well. And, and again, that's that those little, like, nuggets of wrongness throughout. Who else did you have in mind while you were watching this? Like, for people who might enjoy it? Yeah, like, from the modern, from modern audience perspective. See, I don't want to say... If you're my normal answer, which is just if you're interested in movies, you'll like this movie. Right. But at the same time, I do kind of think that if I just threw this movie on in front of a random person, I don't think they'd like it. Not because it's in black and white, but it is just a little dated through no fault of its own. Even the acting, like all the actors are great, but even the acting is a little cheesy at times which i think is just kind of a hallmark of the time so yeah it's certainly hammed up a little yeah or i just i remember there's one scene where this one character gives a great big speech and then he goes goodbye holly and there's no pause or no breath or anything and then he's suddenly off frame and you're like whoa what (laughs) (laughs) i'm really trying hard not to give my usual answer but i think i have to give my usual answer yeah and and that's gonna be the reality of a film from 1949 like this isn't something you know that came out in your parents generation that you know that your parents grew you grew up in the same 
sphere of, right? Like it was something that your parents referenced or something like that. Like this is something that maybe your great grandparents would reference. Maybe your yeah, maybe your like, grandparents, but yeah. Yeah, even even like your grandparents would have to be somewhat older as well, right? Like my grandparents were born, you know, only a few years before this movie came out. So So yeah, this wasn't on their radar. And no. I mean, yeah. And like it is this movie has one very big iconic moment that I think has been referenced in more modern classics. Absolutely. But for the most part, this isn't the kind of like it's not a like it's not one of those big quotable like Psycho, for instance. That's right. an old movie that's been everyone knows because it's just been parodied so much. Exactly. This movie, I don't think it's quite achieved like the same cultural status that like other big movies from this era would have. I I would say yes and no. I think the the references to this are a little bit more in the cinematography and the style than in the dialogue and the plot. Yeah, potentially. The other thing I'll say is I would recommend watching this film with subtitles if they're available to you. Honestly, I don't watch films with subtitles very often but i know i, I think it's the t- biggest uh, contention in our relationship <laughs> <laughs> um but i think that in my opinion in this one because you know this is the time period in which it is and they're kind of using that old-timey american uh film accent it, even like the american accents can be sometimes somewhat harder to understand people also just talk really like the dialogue is very quick and snappy so yes. There, I did catch myself rewinding a lot, just being like, whoa, what did he say? Like, what's going yeah. on? So so when to watch this film? I think this is kind of a late night one, and I don't think this is a during the week kind of watch, because I think if you're asleep and, and not really paying a, enough attention to this film, then a lot's going to pass you by, and and you're not going to appreciate all the little details in this. No, this is a leave your phone in the other room kind of movie. Like, don't get distracted. Yeah, I very much agree. Where to watch? It's not really streaming anywhere right now. No. You can rent it, I believe, on Prime. That's what I did, yeah. Yeah, and so limited visibility. There's some contention online as to whether or not this film is actually in Creative Commons or not yet. So, you know, this film could be something that might be much more accessible in the near future because of its age which is really interesting yeah i guess a lot of those old movies are going to be entering the public domain pretty soon yeah exactly i mean unless disney can find a way to (laughs) destroy that i don't know if that's something they're working on but it seems like something they'd be working on yeah and i think that's it for the primer episode for the third man i think like i said i'm really intrigued to hear your full opinion of this because Again, I thought you'd be really high on this one. Oh, and that's what I'll that's what I'll say as well about who this movie is for before we kind of wrap up the primer episode is I thought that because of this film having its roots in a novella, there's there's so much English, what's the word I'm looking for? There there's so much imagery or um like analogies or symbolism like slang no not slang vernacular um it's a very po it's a very deep film like there's there's a lot bubbling underneath the surface of, of what this film is truly about and 
you know, one thing is kind of representing another thing. And, and there's just so much poeticism to the film and, and the time period in which it's taking place that I thought that, you know, somebody who's really interested in reading and, and really likes reading kind of these meteor type of novels would really appreciate a film like this. Yeah, I can see what you mean. I'm kind of butchering my description, so I hope you do, but... <laughs> that's okay. I've been there. I've been there myself. Yeah. And that's that for the primary episode. So I think we will talk to you next week and do the deep dive into the third man and talk spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> Nothing but spoilers. <laughs> All right. Well, see you next time. Oh, and I should mention, don't forget the draft episode is coming up in the next month, I believe. Maybe maybe a month and a half from now are you talking to our viewers or are you talking to me uh kind of both have okay. you uh have you thought about what you're doing yet have you come up with i have your, have you come up with what you're doing i've come up with what i'm doing but i won't say it just cool yet. cool i i believe i've also come up with what i'm doing at this point i'm probably slightly behind in my viewing though i am more than slightly behind but... <laughs> <laughs> having the uh six seasons in a movie uh, category you're you're definitely behind if you're if you're not six seasons in at this point well i'm being i'm in a very holly martin stage in my life right now where i'm just constantly bubbling and like i'm constantly like stumbling through like, <laughs> scenes if you know what i mean you're just always drunk is what you're saying yeah. well i'm a writer too so yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you're really connected with holly oh yeah loved him uh okay well we'll see you next time for the deep dive episode bye VCR out! <laughs> Don't ever say that again. <laughs>